0: people are the most consequential and dangerous forces on earth well personality psychology
1: is about the nature of human nature it's about people and wouldn't that be useful to know it seems
0: to me i can't i can't think of a more important problem
2: you're listening to the science of personality podcast brought to you by hogan assessments the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987 Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello and welcome everyone back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 15. On today's episode, our guest is San Diego State University Professor of Psychology, Dr. Jean Twenge, and we'll be talking with her about personality, culture, and generational differences. Dr. Twenge is one of the world's leading experts on how to work with today's young generation, drawing from data sets containing as many as 11 million young people. As a result, she's frequently asked to speak to audience such as college faculty and staff, high school teachers, military personnel, camp directors, and even corporate executives. Uh, In addition, her research has been covered by a wide variety of top-tier media outlets such as Time Magazine, Newsweek, The New York Times, USA Today, and The Washington Post. And she's also been featured on Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, Fox & Friends, Dateline NBC, NPR, and several other broadcast outlets. So, uh, and, Gene, and you've also written several books, including your latest book, which is iGen. Uh, would you want to give the audience a little, maybe an overview of what that book is about?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I've been doing this research on generational differences for a long time about 25 years. I started with my senior honors thesis as an undergraduate, kind of discovering some um, what seemed to be generational differences and gotten in more depth into that in grad school. Um, And lately doing this work has meant drawing from these big nationally representative surveys, um, particularly of high school students. So I kind of kept my eye on those and was publishing on those. And in the data coming out around 2012 or so, I started to notice some sudden changes. And I'd really never seen anything like it. First couple of years, I thought it might be a fluke, and then it kept going. And that's when I realized that there was a book in there, um, that there really was a generational break between um, millennials and the post-millennial generation. So I call them iGen. A lot of people call them Gen Z. And that break showed up earlier than I and a lot of other people thought it would um, with those born around 1995 and later. Uh, many people thought it wouldn't really appear until people born around 2000, but there—it's unusual to get such a sudden break. Usually, generational shifts um, are more gradual, but there, there, there were these um, these sudden changes that appeared in the data for adolescents you know, around 2011 or 2012, um, and that really in, inspired the book and. You know later on, we can get into some of the details of what those uh differences are
2: so yeah, I just want to add uh you know thanks again gene for for coming on with us today and I think for our audience, you know it's you know Blake's already given a background uh, a little bit of background uh on eugene but but I think the audience should really know that when it comes to the topic of personality and generational differences. Um, you know, th- this is the world's leading expert. I mean, Gene may say that there's other people who are doing this kind of research, but I think for most people, this is the, the go-to person uh, for, for knowledge on this topic who studied it longer than anybody else. And really, uh, there aren't that many people who, who are studying this topic. And I think it's a really important and really interesting topic. And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of our audience is going to find today's discussion fascinating. Um, and, and of course, you know, uh, obviously you have the new book, iGen, but prior to that, uh, you had the the book Generation Me, uh, which was a big success, and it also, uh, you know, I think was your sort of the, you know, the uh, summary of the first foray you went, you know, starting back with your undergrad thesis and going through all of that research that you've done over those years, really summarized what what we could learn from that. Um, so I, you know, I think if the audience enjoys iGen, they might also enjoy Generation Me as well, and then. The the last thing I want to say is is that is that Jean and I have collaborated on a number of papers together going back several years. And not only is she the world's leading expert on this topic, but she's a fantastic collaborator, and and I've really enjoyed working with her. So so thanks so much for coming on today.
1: Absolutely, and right back at you. You're a great collaborator as well. We uh we really uh, had a a uh, fun time doing those papers.
0: All right, so Jean. First and foremost, like, I'm fascinated by your area of expertise, as I'm sure many people are. So I guess my first question is, you know what inspired you to go this direction with your research and, and, and you know when did this really start?
1: Yeah, well, it, it really did start with my senior honors thesis, which was about gender identity and gender roles, and as part of it, um, I gave a number of undergraduates there at the University of Chicago the Ben Role Inventory. So um, classic measure of so-called masculine and feminine personality traits, similar to the personal attributes questionnaire, the PAQ, which came out around the same time. And, you know, it, it has the stereotypical things you'd expect. So the, quote, masculine scale is things like being assertive and being a leader. And then the feminine scale is things like being caring and nurturing. So it's really agentic versus communal. Um, they kind of figured that out later. Um, and I noticed that for the women, especially their scores on the masculine scale were really out of whack with the test manual from the early 1970s. And this was in the early nineties. So, you know, 20 year period. And, you know, I was an undergrad at first. I was like, am I scoring this wrong? But no, I wasn't, um it was a it was a real difference. And my second thought was, well, I'm at the University of Chicago. everybody's a little weird here, uh, which is a good thing, not a bad thing. But I thought, hey, maybe that has something to do with it. So moved on to grad school at the University of Michigan, used the intro psych subject pool um to do a follow up study, and same result. And everybody there was pretty normal. so I didn't think it was you know that you know campus effect anymore. So I talked to some of my professors in the graduate program there in uh, personality psychology and uh, Randy Larson, for example, who had done a meta analysis. So I said, has anybody ever done a meta analysis looking at mean scores instead of looking at effect sizes? And he's like, "Mm, I don't think so. And I said, well, could you do that? And he's and I remember what he said. It was two words. He said, why not? So I kind of took that as permission, and went and did that. Try to uh, I used um, PsychInfo at first, and later the Web of Science citation database to find everybody who had used the Bem Sex Role Inventory, uh, and I later did the same thing with the PAQ, and found um a pretty uh linear progression by year in scores, especially for women on the so called masculine traits scale. So it wasn't just a fluke that of those two samples that there was a if you just if you graph it out really clear relationship with when people were filling out this measure and it was all college undergraduates and then what the score was. Um and that was my first publication as a grad student and it after a while I realized, you know, this makes sense just from a cultural change point of view, that with women's roles changing so much over that 20 year time period, that there would be a change in personality traits as well. And then my second realization was, well, it might not just be gender roles, there might be other things that might also change over the generations as well. And maybe I can use this same technique to try to look at those. So that was a lot of the rest of grad school. I ended up calling the technique cross-temporal meta-analysis. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but it captures the idea of um, looking at mean scores and then correlating that with the year the data was collected. Um, And you can do that on the ecological level, and then you can also put it in the context of individual differences by using um, the individual level standard deviation to make sure that you you can say what the effect size is in terms of individuals as well.
2: Yeah, Gene. So one of the things that I think, and maybe that we're going to get too technical for our audience right away, that, that I think is really important. So thinking about the study that you did there, you know, you showed this this change in in uh, you know, masculinity-femininity score. Well, mostly masculinity scores for for women during this time period. I, I think one of the key questions that comes up, and, and this comes up in research too, but also, also I think even even most folks eventually get around to trying to think about this, which is, uh, is this a change in the culture, right? Is everybody shifting this way? Or is this just this particular generation who has um, grown up in that culture who's shifted that way?
1: Exactly. So now we get into the question of whether it's usually the term is cohort or generation. I use those two terms relatively interchangeably, even though, Technically, a birth cohort is people born in one year, and then a generation is people born in some usually fairly arbitrarily defined 20-year period, 20-25 years. Um, but it's it's the same idea, that when you're born, influences your personality. Then the second potential influence is the specific time period that you're in, having an influence on personality. So a cohort effect would be Only people being born at a certain time. Often it's going to be young people who are influenced by cultural events. Time period effect would be everybody of all ages being influenced um, by cultural events. And this is a little bit of an overgeneralization, but usually there's some of both going on. Because, I mean, kind of the classic example of this is attitudes around same-sex marriage. There's clearly a generational effect in that, but there was also a time period effect where people who were older also changed their attitudes.
2: Yeah, that, yeah, I think that makes sense. And I, and I think that also helps our will help our audience understand a little bit about how complicated this research actually is. It sounds really simple the way you described it. Oh, well, we just see how people change over time. But it really does get complicated in trying to identify, and I know this is some of the stuff we're going to get into in a little bit later, is, is identifying the causes of, right? What is causing these changes? At what level are these changes taking place? Is it taking place at the at the cohort or generational level, like you say? Is it taking place at the larger population level? And, and of course, the, the third one, which we really haven't talked about. But of course, we know matters as well as age as people get older, that they they change in some ways as well. Exactly. Right. And so there's
1: there's that aspect that we have to try to separate the effects of age period, time period and cohort, which the three are all products of the other two. And that's why statistically, it is difficult to separate them. Um, So there's that big question. And then the other big question is, if you're just going to say, okay, it's probably some time period, some cohort, or you try to determine which it is, even after you've done that, you have the question of, well, then why? Why was there this time period or generational shift um, in whatever you're looking at, whether that's attitudes, um, personality, behaviors, you know, why did these changes occur? Um, and there, that's and even in some ways more challenging question to answer uh, because you can see what changes at the same time. You can see what makes logical sense from an individual level and a group level, Um, but you can't do a true experiment. You can't randomly assign people to be born at different times and see what happened. So uh, you are limited um, by your lack of a time machine. Um so you can't and I was I did a postdoc in in experimental social psychology so I do know how to do this. Um and you can't do this in in cultural change research. Um so you have to rely on what you've got.
0: Well again this I mean Jean this is seems like a perfect time uh for someone like you to have this kind of interest because I feel like uh I don't know if it's been like this in previous years and previous generations, but I, I feel like the the amount of chatter and talk about uh, these this current generation or this this youngest generation that we're talking about, I, I feel like you you were bringing your you found the right time to be researching this because now you're kind of one of the go to experts in this in this field, and I, I find that really fascinating uh, to kind of actually talk to one of these people who's been covering this for so long, but. Uh, in some of your latest research, uh, it's actually been on the mental health of our youth. So, uh, Ryan and I, we were talking about you know, you know, all the different areas that we wanted to cover with this episode, uh, and kind of that was one of the ones that I found fascinating. I- I'm curious to see what your findings were from that research on the mental health of our youth.
1: Yeah, so this was one of the things that I started to notice in the data um, from adolescents starting around 2012 or so that all of a sudden in these big national surveys, more and more teens started to say they felt like they couldn't do anything right or that they didn't enjoy life or that they felt lonely or left out. So those are classic indications of depressive symptoms and of loneliness. And these were sudden and fairly large shifts. It's just really unusual to see very sudden shifts like this. And then they they kept going. It wasn't just a year or two. Um, these upticks in depressive symptoms and loneliness um, have continued. They continue to rise um, all the way through the data from 2019, which is the, the latest we have at the moment. Um, plus, then I started to see this in other places too. So there's a large government-sponsored screening study For major depressive episodes. So that's clinical level depression that really needs treatment. And it's a screening study. So they're not looking at people who are diagnosed um, or asking for help. They're trying to see what's the prevalence in the whole population. And very similar pattern there. Starting around 2012, the percentage of 12 to 17 year olds who fit the criteria for major depressive episode in the last year started to rise, and it has continued to rise again until 2019. Same thing for uh, 18 to 25-year-olds. They took another year or two. They didn't start to increase until about 2014, and then they rose as well. So what's also, I think, really striking is that these trends also appear in behaviors. So it's not just in symptoms, it's also in behaviors. So emergency room admissions for self-harm behaviors have shot upward. Um, Same thing for emergency room admissions for suicide attempts. And the overall suicide rate in these age groups has roughly doubled um, over this same time period. So it's a really consistent pattern. Uh, They're pretty large changes over a short period of time. And they can't be explained by uh, people being more willing to diagnose. That's not what any of these studies did. I didn't right. Did I was going to say,
2: Gene, that's like the first question is, right. is there yeah. change in the diagnostic criteria, right?
1: Right. And that's not true for any, for any of the, the uh, data that I just mentioned. And then the second thing you often hear is, well, could it be that people are just more willing to admit to symptoms? Well, if that were true, you wouldn't see the changes in um, self-harm, suicide attempts, and suicide. And those are very apparent as well.
2: Well, I mean I, I think that <laughs> a few things I mean the first thing you want to think about here is it goes to this question we talked about earlier, so, so what you know what is you know kind of driving this? and one of, the, one of the questions I want to get at before I get into that, gene is is about most of this data you're talking about, I think is from the US. Have you seen other things more globally, or is this really sort of a, a us um, centric kind of thing? So
1: it is beginning to appear globally. So there's good evidence for the UK, uh, Canada, and Australia. So English-speaking countries, there's very similar increases, again, around the same time, around 2012, um, in self-harm, depression, and and so on. Um, That looks very consistent with the US data. I also have a paper under review On adolescent loneliness in, it's thirty one or no thirty six countries around the world,
2: and it's looking pretty similar set of results there as well. It looks
1: promising, and I can't get into the details.
2: (laughs) Okay, because I understand. Yeah, Yeah. we don't don't want to break the news here first. That's Uh, right. (laughs) Well, uh, so you're basically saying that we can't just blame this on Obama because he was president in 2012. So but because he wasn't president of England, it's it's not his fault. So there must be something else. Um, well, we, can't,
1: we can't blame it on Trump either because, right, right. you know, I mean, it it started to increase before he became president. So, yeah, right. you can't can't really um, I mean, you could you could put it on either one of them in terms of why it keeps increasing. But no, there's there's you know two very different presidents over this time period when you have the increase. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Yes. The, um, uh, that it ha- is happening in other countries too.
2: Well, I, I mean, one of, I, I mean, and I know you talk about this in the book and I know you've, I've seen papers that you've, you've published on this as well. Um, you know, I think one of the causes or one of the potential causes that you've talked about is, um, you know, is, and, and I'm sort of getting into our next question, which is about technology or social media, but it seems like, you know, a really plausible, at least to me, uh, factor, right? When we think about depression, just forget about youth or whatever. When you think about things that make people depressed, we know there's a pretty big literature on just sort of the comparative process, right? So if I'm comparing myself to others, right, then that that can be more depressing, particularly if they have more, if they have more success, if they have more friends, if they're more popular or whatever that is, particularly among teenagers, especially. Um, those comparisons are really important. Um it seems logical to me that just more frequent access to those comparisons, you know, could drive this sort of thing. Does that does that sound right to you?
1: I think that's definitely part of it. I think there's um a number of um kind of s- smaller or more specific causes within the general one, which is that. Well, let me back up. Just a, a little bit in kind of explaining, you know, what made me think uh, that technology might have something to do with this change. Because when these changes, uh, when these increases in depression and loneliness you know, first started showing up in these national data sets I work with, I had absolutely no idea what was the cause. Uh, it was a real mystery. And I was trying to figure it out for quite a while um, because it didn't fit economic cycles. Because that's at least, I don't hear this as much now, but when I first started talking about this, say about 2015 or so, I'd often get, well, you know, it, it has to be the economy. But it's not because it starts around 2012. And if you look at unemployment and median income and GDP growth and everything else, that's actually when things started to get better was 2012. And so that period from 2012 to 2019 was economic expansion. It's actually the opposite of what you'd expect for a time period when depression um, is is rising, if it was due to economic factors. And then sometimes I get the, oh, maybe it was a delay. Well, why would it be delayed by five years? And then why would you get the worst depression in 2019 when it was the best economic performance? So that just it was completely misaligned
2: Well I th- I think that also fails to i mean that sounds like such an adult uh answer to the question i get i mean it just fails to consider the things that teenagers care about <laughs> they don't care about the economy exactly.
1: that's right and absolutely and you know you know when when their parents lose a job or there's unemployment or you know economic instability and so on, that that can certainly have an impact on the family and i don't deny that however you're absolutely right you know you think about What does your average 15 or 16-year-old really care about? And generally speaking, there's exceptions, absolutely. It's not going to be the economy. Um, It's not even going to be their parents' job and whether the parents have a job that's, you know, unless they have to move out of their house and leave their friends, it's really not going to register that much with them, uh, except under extreme circumstances. They're not really going to pay much attention to climate change. Some of them are, certainly, but your average teenager, it's going to be their friend's and how their friends communicate with each other and what their friends think of them. That's going to be the things that are going to have the biggest impact on their life. And how they spend their time, especially their time outside of school. And that's what's changed.
2: Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, that's really consistent with what we already know about you know teenagers. And I mean, I, I have two kids, and neither of them are teenagers, but I've already seen that in them, right? Every year they get a little bit older you you, you see they care a little bit less about what mom and dad think and a little bit more about what their friends think. And it just, that's probably going to go on for a while. (laughs) So, so, so yeah, to me, that, that makes total sense that it, that when we're talking about depression, what's the thing that that most affects depression for teenagers, it has to be these sort of peer relationships.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, I, I also want to start by saying it is, important to acknowledge that the primary, um, if you're gonna identify causes for depression and, and mental health disorders, you're gonna have genetic predisposition at the top of your list. And then you're gonna have you know, environmental causes, especially extreme ones like poverty and abuse. Um, so I think it's important to acknowledge though that that's not the question that we're trying to answer here. We're not trying to explain all of the reasons behind depression in adolescence, we're trying to figure out why it increased so much after twenty twelve. And genetics can't explain that. It well, it's short of a period.
2: And I would also guess, and I haven't looked at the data, you you may have looked at this, but I'll bet that if you control for those kind of factors, I'll or I didn't have to control, forget it. Like let's just imagine you take uh middle class kids from, you know, relatively affluent areas in the country, I'll bet you still see the same effect there versus other areas. A- am I wrong about that?
1: You're correct. Yeah, it, it does. It shows up. In fact, that's one of the things that's kind of surprising about some of these um, um, cultural and generational shifts, and this is true of, of mental health, is just how pervasive it is, that you'd think it would vary based on race and ethnicity, social class, region of the country. And for the most part, it just doesn't. It's very consistent across all of these different groups, which again suggests to me that the cause is something relatively universal. So it's something that affected most teenagers in the country at around the same time. And that's another thing that points toward the role of technology because just for, for context, you know, here's, here's the key piece of the puzzle. The end of 2012 was the first time that the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. That's one reason why that's a key year. The other thing that happened around that same time period is in these these big representative surveys of high school students. If you look, say, around that time, so they started measuring social media use around 2009. And at that time, about 50% of high school seniors used social media every day. And then it began to increase. And in the most recent data, it's about 85%. So I don't know exactly where the tipping point in that is, but probably somewhere around 75% is when if you're not using it, you're kind of on the outside. When it was 50, it probably wasn't a big deal. There's probably some tipping point right in there. And that's around when that happened was around 2012 or so.
2: Yeah, I was thinking when you said eighty five percent is the current number, I thought, well, the other fifteen percent are lying. Is that what? Is that what yeah. that means? Yeah. You
1: know, yeah. Um, or they're the ones who are kind of left out, which, and that too, gets to the other kind of piece of our puzzle. That, and you know, we can get into more of the details on this, but you know, there's there's two things about social media um, use and links to mental health. There's first that. The kids who are spending way too much time on social media, you know, five, six, seven hours a day, clearly not healthy, linked to depression, right? But then what happens to the kids who aren't using it? Well, they're protected from like a lot of that social comparison that you mentioned. Right. Um, they don't get that as much, but then they're also left out too. So it, you, you can't win. And that, yeah, yeah, you can. cultural change, not just something at the individual level. And I think that has been just not acknowledged half as much as it should be.
2: Yeah, I I think I I get your point there. You can totally imagine that, you know, why, okay, there are certainly economic circumstances where a teenager might be excluded from the social media thing, but my guess is that in many cases, it's also parental oversight, right? And you can imagine how that kind of thing might lead to, you know, um, sort of psychological challenges as well. Well, well, okay. Oh, go ahead,
1: Yeah, no, I just I just wanted to say that that's what's that's what's interesting is that um, you, you still get that the kid the kids who are not on, well, it, it varies, it varies depending on whether you're talking about internet use, you know, generally speaking, if you're not on the internet at all, then you're kind of in trouble. Um, if you're on as, as a teen, if you're not on social media, that's not quite as negative. But most of the time, in most of the data sets, the kids who are not on social media are look more mentally healthy than those who are on it too much. Generally, the sweet spot in most cases, especially for internet use, is light use, like around an hour or so a day. So you're getting the benefits out of it, but it's not crowding out time for more beneficial activities.
0: Well, that's interesting. So you brought that up where if they're not, the kids who are not using it tend to look a little bit more mentally healthy, if you will. Uh, You know, but a thing that I was thinking about while you and Ryan were, were having that back and forth is, you know, these kids at, you know, let's say in 2012, you know, that's kind of the tipping point. These kids have all these phones, they have their social media and everything. But do we need to blame it? Or do we need to focus solely on the kids? Or do you think that there is some aspect of this that could be uh, you know where maybe the parents are to blame because they they too have access to all this social media they too have the smartphones and you know if you just if I go look at a coffee shop or whatever where there's you know a bunch of you know parents around they're doing the same thing that you see kids doing their their face is buried in their phones so do you think that maybe there's even a disconnect where maybe maybe these kids aren't getting the kind of nurturing or um, you know maybe the love that maybe a previous generations got.
1: So yeah, there's, there's a, there's a, I, think, I think that's absolutely right. I will say one thing first, which is I think we don't want to be using words like blame um, because this is a big cultural change and we're all in it together. And to imply that it's somebody's fault and that we have somebody to blame, first of all, like implies all change is negative, which isn't true. Um, these changes are somewhat negative. But I think it kind of it's kind of counterproductive to say, well, it's this person's fault or it's this group's fault, or so on when these are big cultural changes and we're all kind of riding that wave um so I think that's one you know thing to the important thing to keep in mind. but is this a time period effect that there's lots of people who are spending a lot more time on their phones? Absolutely, that is certainly in the mix um and some of it may have impacted that parent child relationship as well. I think that probably has a bigger impact on younger kids, teenagers, you know, often they, you know, we know that parental relationships are important for them too, but they um, are not quite as uh, interested in, um, you know, that, that careful nurturing that the, that the younger kids kind of lap up. So I think that, you know, that thing of like the mom or dad ignoring the kid when they're on the phone is much more something that's going to impact the preschool kids. Um, than the, than the teenagers, but it still absolutely could have an impact on that. Um, and I'll, I'll mention too. I think what I what I found recently in terms of the impact of social media and phones on um, teens versus adults is in um, the uh, American Time Use Survey. The amount of time that teens or or teens and young adults spent with people face to face has declined over the past 10 years, but it has not declined among uh, older adults. So that might be a key piece of the puzzle in terms of um, the mental health trends, which are not as negative for older adults as they are for younger ones and for teens, that Older folks seem to, even though they've spent a lot of time on their phones, they're not decreasing the amount of time they spend with people in person, and teens and young adults are.
0: Wow, that's that's actually really interesting, and you know, not something I often think too much of because I still try to be the, you know, well, in twenty twenty, it's a little bit different okay. having these in person uh, meetings, but I still do have a select group of friends that you know, I'd much rather spend time with them. Face to face, I feel like I get more out of it. But maybe, maybe that's just not as important or relevant to kids these days. But yet, also potentially having an effect on the and their development. But, um, so moving on to the next question that we have. So, as we mentioned in your introduction, you, you speak to groups like teachers and and college faculty members and corporate executives, etc., about how to work with this new generation. So, I guess, what are some of the issues uh, that you hear from them that they have working with this younger generation and what's kind of some of the advice that you give them without giving away all the secret sauce, they can buy the book for maybe, maybe more info on that.
1: Yeah. So, um, generally when I give these talks, I present the generational differences, um, including that this generation takes longer to grow up and we'll get into the details of that. I think uh, a little later on here today, Um, and then some of the trends in, in mental health. And then when I speak to corporate audiences, I also talk about some of the differences in work attitudes, because there's some really interesting trends there as well. So one thing is for both millennials and iGen, the biggest generational shift in work attitudes is around work-life balance so that they want more of the flexibility, more ability to have time off, um, work from home, all of those types of things. And that shows up much more than anything else. There are certainly some shifts uh, in other traits as well, but that one's the most consistent um, and the largest. Some of the other shifts in work attitudes are, I, th- I think, would be a surprise to a lot of people. Um, there's been an assumption for a while that. Uh, millennials, and probably people assume this for iGen too, are going to want jobs that are inherently interesting, where they can make friends, um, that have these kind of intrinsic qualities. And it turns out when you look at high school seniors, you're taking age out of the equation. Everybody's the same age. If you look at high school seniors going back in the 70s, it's the opposite. That Those intrinsic values have actually declined. That millennials and iGen are less likely to say they want a job that's interesting compared to Gen Xers and boomers at 18. Same thing for making friends at work, they're actually less interested in that. So I think there's a perception that they're more interested in that because they're young. But then when you take it back and are able to zero in on what's really a generational or cultural or time period change, it actually shows up they're less interested in those things.
2: And so is the, is the thing that's replacing that then, that flexibility, that maybe perhaps even time to spend with family, that that, that flexibility might provide? Is, it, is that what you think is, is sort of leading towards that shift?
1: I think that's part of it, because if you look at like attitudes around work, say like work centrality, that's also declined. So more recent generations, less likely to say that they think work is going to be a central part of their life. Um, so... And I think the friends piece of it is also because of social media, because you can reach out to all your friends in that way, and you have this this life outside of work, and that life outside of work is um, just more important and more central than it was to, say, boomers who have gotten more of a reputation for being workaholics. That's not something you would have assumed if you saw them in the seventies, but that's actually what they were saying on surveys at the time. Um, You know, especially if you compare them to the younger generations now that they were more interested in work being more central.
2: Well, and I'm guessing from a workplace standpoint, I'm pretty sure the data are consistent with this too, that that has to uh, sort of impact workplace loyalty. Um, Right. I could be wrong but I have the sense that younger people are more apt to switch I mean that's probably always been true that younger people will be more apt to switch jobs but I think at a higher rate now than previous generations. Is that correct or is that just my my guess?
1: Well, it's it's interesting because like uh, uh from a behavioral point of view you absolutely that that's true. People switch jobs more often now. Millennials switch jobs more often than Gen Xers or boomers did. Um, yet if you look in these surveys, when they're young, millennials are just as likely and, and I, Jen, just as likely to say that they would like to work in the same job for mm. their whole adult life. Cause that question has been asked consistently since the mid seventies and there really hasn't been a lot of change in it. So, um, I think they, they would like that stability. It's that. Sometimes, especially for millennials, their the stand their standards are very high and if they're not met, they'll leave the job. Um I, IGen doesn't have that as much. They they are more practical and grounded and a little more um interested in staying in the in the same job and we'll see if that changes. Um but then they would actually rather stay. But I, I think there's also of course Uh, larger forces at work here. So it's not just that workers want to switch jobs. It's that companies are not as loyal to workers as they used to be.
2: Yeah, I have to agree with you. I think that would be part of my take as well. I think that um, I I, I could be wrong, but I think a lot of people who are around about my age and Blake's age, uh, (laughs) you know, have have felt like at different times in their life, and this isn't just me personally, but I, I think there's a lot of people who felt like if the only it's sort of a known thing. If you want to get, if you want to advance your career, you have to be willing to leave your company. And it feels like that wasn't always the case that the companies didn't want people to leave and, and were just expressed a little bit more loyalty to their employees. Didn't it sort of encourage them to, to go out on the market?
1: I, it, I think it's just an overall change in, in, ha- in, in the workplace that it's just not as expected on either side mm-hmm. that, Will spend their whole career at one company.
0: Well, and I, I think if you look at it from from an organizational like the side of the organization and the side of the the employee or potential applicant, both sides have a lot of options out there that maybe in you know several years ago you didn't even realize that you could you know hey I don't like this job I can just go find another one or if uh, a employee goes to his boss and says hey, you're not paying me enough. I, th- I think you need to pay me more. And they say, well, I can find someone just like you that I can pay the exact same amount and they won't complain about it. So I feel like both sides have a lot of options that maybe they didn't realize before in previous years.
1: And I think that it might change too because um, the recent shifts among young people is that iGen is just uh, practical, grounded, interested in a stable job, um, they may not be as as inclined to job hop. I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But that's how it looks in the survey data.
0: Okay. So moving on to the next uh, question that I wanted to to bring up, and I, uh, you know, there was we're talking back to your book, um, and one of the things that you pointed out, like in the in the subtitle or, or whatever you want to call it, is that kids today are are, are less rebellious and more tolerant. So I'm curious as to why you think that's the case and and how do you think that could potentially shape future generations?
1: So the less rebellious piece is it's a little hard to sum up these things in a subtitle, right? But what it refers to is that Igen is very interested in safety. And they're fairly risk averse, which is interesting cuz that's not usually what you would associate with people who are 25 years of age and younger. That's usually a time when people are going to do dumb, risky stuff, um, especially when they're teenagers. But the change over time in those that high school data, just starting again around 2012 or so, there started to be a slide in the number of high school students who said, that they wanted to take risks or that they like doing dangerous things. And then it shows up in behaviors as well. Um, They're less likely to binge drink. And there's this really interesting pattern. Uh, I I graphed this in the book of um, whether they think binge drinking is a bad idea, you know, whether they think it's safe or not, and then whether they do it. And for most of this survey, going back to the mid-1970s, the number of teens who binge drank was higher than the number who thought it was safe. Right. Cause they're like, I don't care. I'm just going to, more of them are going to do it. Like, okay, living on the edge. It's what you're going to do when you're 18. Right. And then the lines cross. And since iGen um, was the majority of those samples, it's the opposite that actually fewer binge drink than think it's safe. So that's just one illustration of their kind of play it safe attitude. So that's, that's the essence of the less rebellious piece. It also gets to other behavioral data. Um, they're less likely to get in physical fights with each other. Uh, they're less likely to get in car accidents. So just like kind of physical safety um, has improved for young people a good, quite a bit. And then the more tolerant piece is interesting, but also uh, you know a little complicated. Uh, it is Pretty true. You're looking at the survey data and attitudes that iGen, you know, building on the changes of millennials and Gen Xers before them, is um, much more tolerant of different backgrounds. They're more likely to. Um, be open to different gender roles. They're less likely to show prejudice based on race or sexual orientation. And, you know, there's been discussion about whether they also, um, in some people's views, you know, like take, take things too far in that department. And here we're talking about and at your average teen, you know, in these nationally representative samples. And of course the questionnaires don't ask about, you know, do you have to have your, uh, do you have to think that gender is fluid? You know, that's not even in the surveys. Uh, so it's harder to get a gauge on that piece of it. The other piece that's, that's interesting um, and, and somewhat more complex, and we don't have great data on, but people have strong opinions on, well, is this generation more tolerant or less tolerant of different viewpoints? So it's clear they're more tolerant in terms of people's backgrounds and identities, but are they more or less tolerant by viewpoints? And I would probably argue less, but I think it's pretty clear that's a time period effect just with political polarization in the country as a whole um, is much higher than it used to be.
0: Well, that part we can certainly blame on their parents, right?
1: (laughs) That's
0: where we can blame I mean, on a lot of people. <laughs> I'm sure. That, that's absolutely true. Um, well, I mean, but, go ahead, Ryan.
2: No, you go ahead, Blake.
0: I mean, I was just, I was just saying that's. I, I think the the more tolerant part of people's background that's just that's kind of refreshing, and that's where I was getting into the how might this shape future generations? Maybe less so than the rebellious side, because whenever I was listening to the rebellious side, I was thinking, oh, they're just not as fun as we were, but, <laughs> but. But it also, there's a lot of, I think, a lot of positives in them not wanting to binge drink as much and thinking that it's that it's not healthy for them. Because they're right. It is a good thing. It's just, you know, at some point, it's like, you got to rebel a little bit, though. Have, live a little bit. But it's probably good that it's moving in that direction.
1: It's trade-offs. I mean, everything is, right? And this is another thing I hear a lot in doing work on Generations um, which I didn't really expect, but it comes up over and over the number of people who think that all change must be bad. And then on the other side, I hear the other thing too is oh no, everything is fine. It's all great, it's all it's all good. Um, I've seen lots of op-eds and editorials, um, and even some folks who have been responding to to, to my work who seem to have not gotten the point, who are are saying, Oh, you know, you're saying everything is bad. Nope. Um, Cultural change is what it is, and some of it's good, some of it's bad, and some of it you can't put a label good or bad on, and you miss a lot if you're just putting things in those bins of good and bad. You really have to look at the big picture where these are all the changes, and yeah, you could probably judge some of them as good, but then even the ones that are good have trade-offs. Like you said, you know, maybe you need to rebel a little bit. Maybe you need to do some exploring. Maybe you do need to take some risks because they're a learning experience.
2: The the one thing that I do want to add, I think, for a little bit of clarification, just for for, for the audience, is that it, when we're talking about young people being less rebellious, when we're talking about young people being um, you know, more risk averse, we're not talking about being more risk averse than you know fifty um, something year old adults, right? We're talking relative to other young, you know, people of the same age or previous uh, time periods, right? And, and I think that's important to note because you know teenagers are still one of the more risk-taking groups of people—they're just less risk-taking than previous generations of teenagers. That's that's correct, right, Gene?
1: Exactly, because this uses a a time lag method where everybody's the same age, but we're looking at different points in time. So, one of the surveys that I use, what I was mostly referring to in my past um, answer there, is called monitoring the future. And it looks at 8th, 10th, and 12th graders, um, and it's looked at the 12th graders back to 1976, and the 8th and 10th graders back to 1991. So we can see, for the 18-year-olds, for example, what the baby boomers were like in the 70s when they were 18, Gen Xers um, in the uh, 80s and, and 90s, you know, millennials in the 2000s and then igen starting around 2012
0: it's it's interesting though because a lot of what you're saying uh about this kind of rings true for me because i actually have a 16-year-old nephew and a 19-year-old niece so i've seen this i've talked to their parents you know i've asked them because i'm thinking back to whenever i was their age i was a nightmare you know <laughs> i mean my mom's probably thinking why couldn't he have been born with this group um because my nephew and niece have always been so well-behaved, not rebellious at all. And I just kind of thought, you know, Hey, you got lucky, you know, sister, brother, you you got lucky, but um, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting because a lot of this is just so true. But um, another thing that you mentioned is that this new generation is less happy and completely unprepared for adulthood, um, you know. It, who again? We don't want to throw around the blame word, but do you have any reason as to what might be causing this? Or you know, who should we be? What what should we be looking at? The Parents, technology, both. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Right. So, so that 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 part of you know, unprepared for adulthood. So I said there's trade offs, right? So there's. A lot of upsides to these trends, but then that's the downside. Let me say a little bit more about what some of these trends are. So we already talked about alcohol, that high school students now are much less likely to drink alcohol compared to previous generations at the same age. They're also less likely to get their driver's license, to work at a paid job, to go out without their parents, to date, to have sex, um, all of these things that are adult activities. So things that adults do and children don't. So those have historically been milestones of adolescence. And fewer 18-year-olds are doing those things now compared to previous eras. Same thing if you look at the 8th graders and the 10th graders. I mean, some of the changes are the most stark for the 8th graders. It used to be that the majority of 8th graders had tried alcohol. By the end of middle school. And now it's only about one out of four. And it's very similar for, um, say, dating. Should, about half of them would regularly go out or ever go out on dates. And now it's a lot, a lot less about one out of four. So there's these just striking shifts that teens are doing these things later. And this is the trade off piece. There's advantages to that. It is, you know, most parents obviously are thrilled that there are four <laughs> high school students. Who are having sex and drinking alcohol. Um, public health experts feel the same. Um, but the trade-off is that you have a generation who's going to college and entering the workplace that doesn't have as much experience with independence. And they don't have as much experience making their own decisions. And that can be really challenging. And it can create issues. So You know, how did we get here in the first place? Why has development slowed down? The explanation that I think fits the data the best is from evolutionary psychology, the idea of a slow life strategy versus a fast life strategy. So the fast life strategy is where people have their kids relatively young, And they usually have a lot of kids, and the kids learn how to fend for themselves at a much earlier age. The slow life strategy tends to happen at times and places where people live longer, healthcare is better, education takes longer to finish. Then parents tend to make the choice to have fewer children, usually when they're a little older, and then they nurture those children more carefully, and the kids don't have as much independence early on. So when you have that situation in a culture, which is a pretty good description of the way we live now, then people grow up more slowly. And it's not just teenagers. It's also important to put this in context. Eight-year-olds don't have as much independent experience as they used to. Twelve-year-olds don't. Um, And then young adults take longer to get married, to have children, to settle into a career. Um, Middle-aged adults, and I'm talking about Myself here and my fellow Gen Xers, you know, we're still wearing our concert t-shirts and ripped up jeans, you know, 50 year olds didn't used to do that kind of thing. And then baby boomers, you know, similar type of thing that they, you know, it's the whole idea of like, 60 is the new 50. 40 is the new 30. The entire life cycle, entire developmental trajectory has slowed down at every age stage and so that's why we have this and there's good things about it and then there's not so the good things about it
2: (laughs) this reminds me and i I won't reveal too much but a a teenager who is 18 that i know recently i was uh, in his presence and uh he said uh mom to his mom not me uh i'm feeling kind of hungry should i get something to eat
1: oh my god
2: and i thought (laughs) my god you're 18 do you like, should I have a sandwich? I'm like, why? <laughs> Surely you can make this decision for yourself. That's a good one. And it just it just you know what you just said reminded <laughs> reminded me of this moment.
1: Right. And you never you know, you never know with things like this how much of this is individual difference and right. so on. Wait, does it fit the trends that I just yeah.
0: mentioned? It, it, this is also something that I I got on to my sister about this, I guess. This was, I think, while I was over, um, I was staying with her for my niece's high school graduation. And I I said, well, where's Carson? And my sister pulls up her phone and she looks, she's like, oh, well, she's she's at her friend's house, her friend Ashley's house. And I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, she's about to graduate and you're tracking where she is at all times. I said, please tell me when she goes to college, you're not going to, you're going to shut that off. You're going to uninstall that. She was like, Oh no, no. Uh-huh. At, at what point do you uninstall the app and stop following your daughter around? Uh, it, you know, so thinking about that, my parents were just like, come home whenever the street light turns on, you know, whenever I'm five years old riding my bike around the neighborhood, you know, it, I, I can see where there is j- gonna be issues with this and maybe it's it is coddling and you know she is an only child too so maybe that has something to do with it
1: i I mean i think there 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 is something to be said for that life strategy piece of it when you have fewer children it's it's also though it's just it's the whole culture because you know back in the 50s even if you're from a small family this, the cultural standard was, like you're describing, you know, for kids to go play and then they come back when it gets dark. Um, that's just not what's done now, um, and it it becomes something that's not just at that individual family level, but you know, a larger cultural thing that you can't even make those decisions as much for as much for yourself. And this is where we, you know, get into some of the ideas around free-range parenting and you know, how much freedom do we want to let our kids have and you know, are you going to get in, get in trouble with um, you know, your neighbors or worse, uh, you know, child protective services if you let your 10-year-old walk home from the park? And unfortunately, in several cases, the answer has been that you get in, in trouble, um, which really shows you just how different things are, are now.
2: Well, I know adults who have similar apps to track each other. romantic partners and things (laughs) to me a lot of this bears on trust issues but
1: yeah there's some of that too and then some of it is just people who don't bother to tell you where they're where you're where they're going you know where did you go
0: for me i'm still of that age where my friends binge drink so it's it's more of like (laughs) let's just keep track of where we are if we go to a concert you know we We need to find you if you're if you're you know lock yourself in a in a. a too wasted
1: to find your friends to to get your drive home. I guess (laughs) for that.
0: (laughs) I mean, there there are good responsible reasons to use these apps. But uh, before we wrap up the episode, this is the one that I've kind of been waiting. You know, I wanted to bring this up later in the episode because I I do think it's a a really cool uh, collaboration that you and Ryan did. So a few years ago, you and Ryan um, did some research, um, and found out that millennials were having less sex than previous generations. You know, obviously that study received a significant amount of attention in the, in the media. Uh, my question here is, were you able to determine why millennials are having less sex than previous generations? Or can you explain why you think it might be the case?
1: Yes. We use the general social survey. And since the late 80s, they have asked people how many sexual partners they've had since the age of 18. They ask about male partners and then female partners. So we looked first at the number who had had no partners. And I did it, you know, I like to joke is the dumb way of just looking at 20, 24 year olds born in different times, different generations. What does it look like? And millennials and the oldest part of iGen Um, that's what we saw, was a larger percentage of 20 to 24-year-olds in recent years have had no sexual partners since the age of 18 compared to previous generations. And then Ryan went in and did the age period cohort analysis, a more sophisticated statistical technique to include all the data on people of all ages to hold um, age constant because, of course, your number of reported sexual partners is, is going to increase over time and then c um and maybe you can talk about that ryan about what we found with the period time period and uh cohort variation
2: yeah well i mean the the big thing there was we we you know, as as Blake mentioned, we obviously saw that these younger cohorts are uh, essentially so. And this goes back to one of the questions or one of the things I wanted to clarify earlier: younger people, people in younger generations, uh, were, are are having sex more than people in, in older generations. People in their twenties uh, and and early thirties tend to have the most sex. But um, what we're seeing is a is a decline in how much of that there. Well, in this particular case, it's um, how how an increase in the life Likelihood of, of being abstinent, of not having sex during that time period for, right. for that, for that, that, uh, what's millennial and iGen cohort because, mm-hmm. uh, well, well, we'll get into why in a second, but the big, uh, I think the big deal there was that it's, uh, a higher rate than you would expect given how young they are. That is, we know that young people are frequently, ha- are, you know, at that age are having more sex, but, um we were not seeing as much as you would expect And, and I, I like to point this out because lots of media things that covered it really kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Chelsea Handler had a thing and she was being funny and it was very funny. She said, Oh, young people aren't having sex. And she was like, I'm going to teach them, you know, or something like <laughs> that. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, that's not really the case, right? Young people are still having sex, just not as frequently, frequently as you would expect, given how sure. young they were and given the time period that they're living in.
1: Exactly. Exactly, and that—that's what's so cool about that age, period, cohort analysis is—is is we can look at that. You know, if you looked at you know Gen Xers and Boomers when they were young, um, mostly Gen Xers in this case, but you can you can zero in on you know, their their number of partners, their sexual frequency, because the survey asked about that too, uh, and then compare it and say, you know, the young generations now, how do they look compared to? the way these older generations looked um, when they were that age. And you can you know, try to separate out some of those, um, some of those effects.
0: Well, that, I mean, that was obviously something that we had to cover in this episode. So uh, well, I know we had to. But, but I want to
2: say Blake, that I think one of the questions, that, the two questions that came up related to that are, you know, um, you know, one is, you know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, which we had to discuss quite a bit. And then, I, and I think like Gene, we we sort of <laughs> come away, you know, sort of neutral on this, right? So many parents think it's a good thing. Um, but I mean, there's reasons to think, well, maybe this isn't such a good thing either, um, for, for some of the reasons Gene uh, mentioned earlier about, you know, preparedness for adulthood and that sort of thing. Um, but then the other question is, is like, you know, what's driving the, this change? And that's that's a really hard question to answer, and I know we did. We looked at a whole bunch of things, and Gene might remember them better than than, than I do. But you know, there, people came up with all kinds of theories right away, right? I, I got emails. I'm sure you did, Gene, about about yeah, yeah. you know why this is going on. You know, uh, pornography was one of the ones. Well, because people have access to more pornography now. But We actually found, if anything, uh, people who had access or were viewing pornography more frequently were were actually having more sex, not less. Yeah.
1: It, well, that's also another problem of the individual level versus the group level, right? That at the individual level, the people who are viewing more pornography, probably have a higher sex drive. And so mm. it's not, you know, you're not going to get the relationship with sexual frequency. But then over time, you could still potentially make that argument, but it's hard to prove. Right. So, yeah, other other factors. Um, I mean, I, 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 I wrote um, uh, a, a piece recently for JAMA. Making the argument that I think there's two the two factors that explain this the most clearly are number one, the piece around growing up more slowly mm-hmm. that just all of these things related to adulthood and reproduction are happening later um, and that has has these these trade offs and then the other piece is potentially the role of of technology, just that I mean to be very concise about it, there's a lot more things to do at 10 p.m. than there was 30 years ago. You know, there's so many more things to binge watch and social media and so on, as opposed to, you know, watching the local news at 10 o'clock, which since I grew up in North Texas, by the way, I I, I know about the local news coming on at 10 o'clock instead of 11.
2: (laughs) Right, of course.
0: Well, that's, that's all really fascinating. I don't know, you know, like obviously I came from a different generation, but you know, my mom's listening. So mom, I was a perfect angel. So, you know, <laughs> don't, don't, don't worry about me <laughs> uh, and still am. But for my, for our last question, before we let you go, Gene, I want to take a look into the crystal ball 20 years from now when this this generation that we have discussed throughout most of this episode is well into adulthood and having children of their own what do you think those kids will be like
1: well first of all there's going to be a lot fewer of them um i'm convinced that the birth rate is never going to go back up in this country Mm. the it was already on the way down um it's interesting because a lot of people said okay Millennials, while we're a little concerned, the birth rate's going down. It's probably because of the Great Recession. It'll come back. It didn't. Now we have the pandemic. That's going to suppress the birth rate. I think that's pretty clear. And people are, okay, it's going to come back. It won't. Um, You can see that not just in those actual numbers and trends, but there's early indications in the survey data that iGen is just not as interested in getting married and having children than previous generations. Um, so we'll see, but I think that's that's gonna be one big um, thing that I'll go out on a limb and, and predict. Um, so for the kids that they do have, you know, what are their kids gonna be like? I mean, that is anybody's guess, right? I'm very much wedded to the data and we'll have to see. I would not, I'll admit it, I wouldn't have predicted those changes with iGen. Before they happen, they showed up, and I went, "What the heck is going on?" And I'm sure the same thing will happen again several times in in the future. Um, I think it'll it'll be very interesting to see a little more short term how the after effects of 2020 and the pandemic play out. Are we all still going to be working from home? Um, you know, are we going to do more Zoom meetings still, or are we just going to be so sick of it, we're going to give it up? Um, I think it will be some somewhere in between that. I think there's going to be an increasing acceptance of people working at home or in the location that they want. And we don't all have to come together for the Zoom meeting. But then, boy, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, that whenever we all finally get a lot out of our houses in May or whenever it is, we're going to be eager to do that.
2: Yeah, I, I'm sure that's a question you get a lot, Gene. That's related to this, which is about how the pandemic, you know, how, you know, what kind of effects we might expect long term on this. We we get questions about it at Hogan. People want to know how the pandemic affected, you know, uh, personality test results. The answer is no, they haven't. Right. So the average is still the same now for not for the stuff that we measure for for our sort of big five you- like things.
1: But neuroticism, really?
2: No, we haven't actually seen In fact, if the thing we've seen the biggest change on, and it's really small, is on security. We've seen just the ever so slight uptick on, on a measure of security. But, you know, for the most part, these are questions, you know, the kinds of questions on our surveys aren't, they're not really attitudinal the way a lot of the stuff that I know that, that you, you study. Um, of course, not everything you study is attitudinal, but, um, you know, I just feel like they're a little less... You know, they're, it really wouldn't matter if you're in a pandemic. You're just, you, people really just aren't responding that differently to these kinds of
1: Anxiety, things. there's there's some good census data showing that anxiety is way up. So that that's the one I'm, surprised. the rest of it, I'm not surprised, but that one I am.
2: Yeah. Well, and I certainly think from a state sort of standpoint, I mean, I, I just, just thinking about the items that I know are on our assessments, I just think, well, are
1: they're really
2: much really stuff? changed. They're just so trait-like in the way that they're asked. Got it. Yeah.
0: yeah. And another interesting thing that we just we just completed a, a survey in Europe uh, just to kind of get a feel for what the future of work's going to be like asking questions around to workers around, you know, the pandemic and how it's affected them and, you know, whether they think their organization did a good job adjusting to it. I think the the craziest thing that we saw is if you look at previous research on employee engagement, it's not great and it hasn't been great for quite some time across the globe engagement according to the you know I want to say like 700 or so people that we got responses from has done a 180 huh. is what I found pretty fascinating now it's it's a small sample size we're gonna we're gonna replicate this across Asia and uh, the US but it's a pretty encouraging sign to see and I'll be curious to see if that holds up. in in different regions, but I mean, it was, it was a significant, like, I want to say it was 80% plus um, feel that, right, that they're engaged, or at least with their organization, which is quite the contrary to anything you would have seen prior to the pandemic.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really interesting. You'd think people weren't going into work and they'd be less, less engaged, you know? So, I mean, I wonder how much of it is, oh yeah, I'm I, I'm engaged because who knows how long I'm going to have this job.
0: True. Yeah, I True. wonder if
2: there's sort of a, um, you know, uh, also some sort of supportiveness there too, right? So the people that we're surveying are people who are still in in jobs and still employed. And I wonder if they're feeling like, you know, my you know, company's taking care of me. My company has implemented some kind of work from home strategy. My company, you know, has done those kind of things and that's what's keeping them, you know, engaged or, or maybe just the more engaged employees are the ones who are, more likely to still be around for the survey.
0: Yeah, and and you know maybe this is just a short term thing, but definitely um, was one of the key findings that we saw. We asked, I think, thirty plus different questions, and that was the one that kind of really stood out as, "Wow, that's different than it used to be." So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. But
1: yeah, that's very encouraging. That's great news.
0: Yeah. So, well, Gene. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us uh, to record this this episode. We, we again we were wanting to bring you on for uh, for quite some time now, and glad we finally made it happen. And I hope you uh, enjoy the rest of your 2020 as best as you can.
1: Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. This was lots of fun.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot for coming,
0: Gene. Always great to talk with you.
1: Likewise, absolutely.
0: And that does it for episode 15 of the science of personality podcast. Be sure to join us in two weeks for episode 16, where Ryan and I will have a special end of year episode in what's been a while 2020. You won't want to miss it. Cheers, everybody.
2: This has been the science of personality podcast brought to you by Hogan assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, science of or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.